0: don't you dare roll your eyes i saw that
1: (laughs) i was actually sending a work thing so oh you're
2: multitasking good for you
1: how dare you
0: i'm giving 100 percent here Hi, welcome to Outrageous, our bi-weekly podcast where we talk about race, media, culture, politics, and everything in between. My name is Chris, I'm in New York City, and I'm joined by my very best friends, Trisha in LA. Hello. And Jason in BC. Greetings. So last week, we aired the episode where Jason told us all about his time at the Trump White House that we had recorded in 2017. So now we're back in the present day. It's back 2018. Jason is back with us. Congratulations.
2: Welcome. So, Jay, I, I, how long were you how long were you there? I was there from January 2017 until mid-October 2018. So,
0: I just want to ask you the hard questions. Ready? Regrets?
2: I don't have any regrets. Really? Really? Huh. Explain. I think I was able to do some good while I was there for the department and for kids and for the country. I don't think that I did any harm. So I have no regrets. And I learned a ton.
0: If there's anything you were going to get out of this, it was going to be that. First of all, can you talk about how you came to leave? So people don't think like you were like chased out by Donald Trump himself. How did you
2: come to leave the Department of Education? So I said that I was going to try to be succinct in my answers, as opposed to how I was (laughs) the last time we talked in February 2017. (laughs) But it's so hard. Like, So I'm going to try to do this succinctly. First of all, in the summer of 2017, some folks may have seen that it was reported that I was leaving the Department of Education. And this was immediately following some national reporting that Senator Lamar Alexander, who is a committee chair of the relevant Committee to Education in the Senate, he had publicly kind of chastised me for feedback that I gave states about their state plans. And so so soon after that, it was reported I was leaving the department. Just to put that in context, I was on vacation and I get a call from the director, or I'm sorry, the acting assistant secretary for the Office of Communications and Outreach at the Department of Education. He calls me while I'm on vacation and says, I just want to give you a heads up. There's going to be a national article that you're leaving the department. There's no truth to it, but I just heard about it. So I wanted you to know literally within seconds after i get off the phone with him like an article pops up to this day no one has ever owned up to being the source for that story the reporter said that multiple people had said that on condition of anonymity that was the first moment though when i thought do i need to be looking for a job because people had warned me <laughs> any political appointee you're on a stopwatch and you can be you know gotten rid of for any reason whatsoever I was in a particularly precarious situation. It was publicly reported that I was a Democrat, which I am, and that I had been supportive of Obama, which I was. Um, and, and, and now I had this like, public spat with this powerful committee chair. So I was like, wow, I, I might actually need to think about what happens if I do get chased out. But then I, you know, I said to myself, I, if, you know, at some point, obviously, I will be leaving at some point, who knows when. But I need to leave on my own terms. I can't be chased out. So I stayed at the department and continued to do the work. After I had been there a full year, so January 2018, I, I had gotten past that spat. I didn't have the kind of daggers being thrown at me that I had for a while. But I thought, you know, it's probably it probably is just good practice to start to think about what I might do next. So I wasn't looking to leave. I, I was enjoying the work. I thought I was able, as I said, to do good work and I wasn't doing harm, so I started to just think about it. I started to call people who whom I trusted in the field of education, have confidential conversations. Just say, "Hey, whenever I finish doing this, do you have any suggestions?" So I was, I just put feelers. Out. I was just having conversations. I was still doing the work, and one of there was a conversation in particular that I was having with someone I knew as the CEO of a company. We were talking quite a bit. Again, it wasn't about a particular job at first. It was just about education in the field, and over time that evolved into a conversation about me working at the company and ultimately that's what happened. So I I was still enjoying the work, but I got this great opportunity to work for a company that I think is doing really good work for kids. I think Secretary DeVos continued to be happy with my work and she was very supportive and um, very nice when I told her that I was, I was going to take this opportunity. So that's how it happened.
1: So when you say that um, you felt like you were doing good, you know, we've just spent some time having um, a pretty good our pretty thorough exploration of what exactly happens at the Department of Ed. I hope you all were able to take that all in. <laughs> <laughs> so when you say that you felt that you were doing good, can you sort of frame that in um, in the context of how things were playing out at the Department of Ed? Can you be a little bit more explicit about that?
2: Yes. So a few things. One is I I love management, and I was able to be in multiple management positions during my de- my time at the department, and I I enjoyed the work. I felt like by managing in effective ways, I was helping to improve the department and and what it was providing to the field. And I got a lot of positive feedback from lots of folks at the department about management. So that's one thing where I just feel like I would, and and I don't I don't want to be critical of anyone in particular, but. There certainly were examples of not so good management at the department. And even more than that, I heard stories of previous managers that weren't so great. And so it seemed like I was doing good, but just by really being committed to being a, an effective manager. Secondly, probably the biggest thing, like the most public thing, this was reported a lot in the press, was that I, I happened, I was fortunate in joining the department at a really important moment in education in that the Every Student Succeeds Act had been passed not too long before. And when I got there, states were responsible for submitting these consolidated state plans, which which essentially the law required that every state submitted a plan that laid out how it was going to hold schools accountable for performance, particularly with students from educationally disadvantaged populations, but in general as well. All 50 states plus the District of Columbia and Puerto Rico by law had to submit these plans. And these plans are very complicated. The law, it's a thousand-page law, very complicated law. These plans were really essential, and it was there was just a lot to litigate in the plans around what states were going to do to ensure that schools were meeting the needs, for instance, of English learners, of African-American students, of students with disabilities, of Hispanic students, etc., so it was a great moment to be there because I had the chance to read these plans, work with folks at the department, and there were some great folks there, both career and political lawyers and subject matter experts, and say, okay, all these things that this state laid out are compliant with the law. These other things are not. The law requires that they're, for instance, more attentive to this particular group or that they will disaggregate you know, student achievement data for these different groups. So it was just a time to really make sure every state was complying with the law. I think the law has a lot of good safeguards in it. It also leaves a lot of room for innovation. So it was a chance to see what states were doing in terms of being innovative. So the opportunity to ultimately review and approve all 52 of those and recommend that the secretary approve them in every single state, it was a protracted conversation, some more than others for sure. But there was not one plan that showed up in compliance in its entirety or even close, frankly. So that opportunity to work with states on what education was going to look like in their states moving forward, that was great. And then the last thing is that, as as I mentioned back in February 2017, the department gives out a lot of grant money, and I had the opportunity to have input on how those grant competitions were going to be designed, what priorities were going to be there, and really trying to put in priorities that were going to incentivize the country to and and different institutions to adopt practices that were going to be more evidence-based that were going to serve populations that are often underserved. And I'm sorry there's one last thing after that which is the department's undergoing restructuring now that happens a lot maybe even under every new administration, but that's another thing I, I had a leadership role in thinking about how the department could be more effective and efficient. I oversaw in particular the merger of the Office of Elementary and Secondary Education which the office, with the Office of Innovation and Improvement. And I, I love organizational structure. I love strategic planning. So I, I think I had the opportunity to work with folks and really think about how to design that in a way that was going to best serve the public and also be truly helpful to people who work there.
0: So I want to start off by saying that that was not succinct at all. Mm-hmm. Um, you really just went for it. That's so long. Second thing. you're welcome. Do you really know Ivanka Trump and her husband? I have a Google alert on you. My favorite thing is that um, there was a piece in something that you got the job because you're close friends with Ivanka Trump. Now, you and I are close friends, and I've never heard you mention (laughs) Ivanka Trump. So can you explain um,
2: how that happened? Are you guys hanging out without me? Mm -hmm. Tell me the truth. So I had not met Ivanka or Jared at the time that I got the job. I know what you're talking about. That reporting was not quite accurate. Now, it was a close friend of Ivanka and Jared's who is the person how I got the job. He's not a close friend of mine, but he's someone that I knew in Baltimore. So that was the connection. So I think the article said that Ivanka had recommended that the president appoint me. You know the president appoints lots of people. I'm going to say appoints in quotes because every president appoints a ton of people that they don't know anything about. So mm-hmm. it, I think it went through Ivanka through some way, but it, she didn't know me, didn't know much so about me. She wasn't me. like she wasn't like, Daddy, uh, please put Jason through. He's my best friend. Nothing yeah, like that. She, she was not like that. Now I will say I did have the opportunity while I worked at the department I met. Ivanka and spent a couple of hours with her once and then in a, another time I was in a meeting with Jared for about an hour and that's the that's the extent to which I've spent time with Ivanka and Jared. How are they lovely?
0: In Don't those two that. Don't answer
1: that. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> in,
2: well, well, no, in those two meetings they were I I thought they made good contributions.
1: But let's be let's be real here. There are lots of people who are going to listen to you say the work that you were doing and how you thought it was impactful and I was like, but you were working for an evil empire. But how did you really deal with that sort of like disconnect between what you felt like you were have the experiences you were having in your work day with the people you enjoyed and the public perception of this administration?
2: So personally, I continued to find much of what the administration was doing to be abominable. I really found a lot of it to be awful. I continue to find it that way. So that that was but in terms of for me I just felt like I could go to work every day. I could try to make a positive contribution. If there were directions that the department was potentially going to go in that I disagreed with, I had the opportunity to express that and sometimes to meet with certain folks and kind of organize a certain perspective to make sure that was considered. So I appreciated that opportunity, but n- make no mistake about it. I still disagree with most of the policies and certainly the rhetoric and the nastiness um, that exists in much of the administration in terms of with personal relationships. I mean, the questions you two are asking, I got those questions while I was there. I had friends say, wait, you say you like your job. Like, talk to me about that. How is that possible? Or people say, you know, I am dealing, I'm watching immigration policies being enforced in my community that are awful How is it that you can possibly work there? And those were tough conversations. I answered them similar to the way I just answered your question. I still don't have regrets because I think I had the opportunity to do some positive things, but I still disagree with the administration on a lot of issues.
0: D, have you lost friends?
2: No, I haven't lost friends. When I first got the job, I was on Facebook. I was on Twitter and I was on LinkedIn. I decided early on to Actually, this you'll appreciate this, Chris, because you've recommended that we as a society cancel social media. Well, mm-hmm. I canceled all my accounts because it became clear that they were going to be a distraction and not be helpful. And I was being trolled by reporters and that kind of thing. Not just me. It wasn't about me, but kind of everybody there was. Before I did, though, when it became public that I took the job, I certainly had Facebook friends. Some of them reach out and say, I think this is a bad decision. I'm worried about you. Um, I can't believe you're doing this. No one that I'm actually in relationship with in a meaningful way. you know. I, again, I got questioned plenty, but all the people I was friends with, truly friends with before, I'm still friends with. And I, again, really appreciate you two having me back here, and I value your friendship tremendously.
0: Aw, I love
2: you. I, I love you, too. I love you both.
1: Hey, look hmm. that. Hmm. We'll Trisha, Trisha is still in the family. <laughs> <laughs> Not at all. Jason, I have to say that when we filmed season, um, when we taped season one, I think many of the listeners who, who were introduced to Jason in season one would have been surprised by your decision. And I think maybe it's because of this weird dichotomizing that happens, right? Where we like, I mean, in the real world, you sort of make complicated choices all the time, right? You know, you're a villain, this person's a villain, and neither twain shall me. But I think what's been so interesting about this conversation we've had, both the one that we had previously and this one, is how you've been trying to sort of create this distinction between this like overarching administration and the people that exist within the structures of the administration and how they go about their day-to-day lives trying to do good work. I don't think that that's something that rests easily with the public.
2: Well, all right. I'm going to try to be succinct. So here we go. It's worth noting, and I, I believe I said this in February 2017, that the vast majority of people who work in our government agencies are civil servants. Our career employees are not appointed by political folks. Yep. So first of all, there's that. I just want to point that out because I was working with tons of people on a daily basis, many of whom I'm sure, many of whom, probably most of whom are Democrats. But even put that aside, are just committed to the mission of the department are committed to the country and to helping kids. So so that there's that. Then within the administration, I think, and this will not come as a surprise, I, I think we hear lots about this, but there are certainly folks who are conservatives who are very concerned about public policy and are trying to improve conditions for Americans. I may disagree with them on a lot of issues, but... They, many of them are there to really try to make the country a better place, and I find it very easy to work with folks like that, even when we don't agree on a lot of things. I want to be careful here because I, I, I'm not judging anyone when I say this stuff, but there you can feel being inside, you can feel the divide between the the kind of more traditional Republican conservatives who enter government, again, to try to, I think, really improve the country and if they do it in ways that I might not always agree with. And then folks who really came in as part of the Trump revolution. And, and there is a divide there. It's not absolute. Lots of people working with each other, but I had very interesting conversations. I had people confide in me, Republicans confide in me who felt on different sides of that divide. And that was fascinating to watch and hear about.
1: I mean, I think you're helping me not hate the whole thing Uh, because I I'll be honest, I really judged it. I really did. I was, I judged it harshly. I'm talking to your favorite person who is my sister and who's all team Jason. And she's like, are you going to forgive Jason for leaving the podcast? (laughs) And I said, you know, I thought about it and I was like, you know, this is something that you've been doing for a really long time. You've been working in the field of education for a very long time. And I thought to myself, you had an opportunity to work at the highest level in a field that you've been doing for a very long time. It seemed small of me to not like let you have that experience and try to do some good in a space that is, um, in it, that is filled with civil servants who work through many different administrations. I think mm-hmm. that's also part of that, uh, that, that sort of lack of understanding of sort of how the government is constructed and who works in government and things like that. So, I
0: have yeah. to say, like, when we found out, Trisha was mad. <laughs> Trisha, I don't know if you remember, you were mad at Jason. Like Oh, you never told him. me, Trisha. Well, they, well, because it was we're weird. Not, like, you know. You, 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 I mean, I remember we had one conversation, and you were just, I mean, we're friends. We're all friends, and it just came out of left field. Now, I will say that it didn't surprise me, one, that you were offered the job, and two, that you took it. Because for everything that, that Trisha just said, like, I've always known this is what you were going to do was work at the highest levels of education. The, the timing was what it was, but here was the opportunity and that's how it came. And I knew you were going to take it, but yeah, like it was a, uh, and I said this on the earlier podcast, it's like for, a, for a while, I didn't know what to say to you. I didn't know. Cause we were all up in our feelings. It was like, you know, <laughs> it was yeah. like that, that, that transition from Obama to Trump, everyone was in their feelings.
2: One other thing about why I left and I'll have to check with my girlfriend to make sure she's okay with me saying this, but Although I had already been putting feelers out and thinking about what I might do next, the moment when it was reported that Trump referred to Haiti and West African countries as shithole countries, that was a, a very powerful moment for me. And there were others, of course. I mean, Charlottesville seeing Nazis march and hearing his equivocations. I mean, that was awful. But there was something so personal about the reference to haiti and west african countries because it just so happens my girlfriend's mom immigrated here from haiti her father immigrated here from west africa and it was like oh my goodness like he is saying we shouldn't be accepting immigrants from this country my girlfriend would not be here if we didn't accept immigrants from this country and again it's weird that like my you know grandparents were uh, immigrants here. So, but hearing him refer to those countries as shithole countries was, I was like, wow, I got, I got to get out of here. <laughs> that was, that was a moment too.
0: In wrapping this up, Jason, you've given me not just now, but over the past two years, you've given me, a, you've given me a way to think about how, what's the word I'm looking for? It's not civility. It's not civility, but at the end of the day, like people who disagree have to work together. I do not know how to evaluate if you were able to do any good in the department. I know you, so I know that your intentions were correct, and I know that everything you did was for the good of children. But I, I don't know. I guess, I don't know if there's a question or a statement. Given your experience of what you saw at, at, that, at that level on the inside, what would you say is the state of people working together to actually move the country? Or is everything politics on every level?
2: That is a great question. You know, I had to work with lots of organizations, you know, principals associations, superintendent associations. I was on a daily basis meeting with national organizations that, and state organizations that represented all different constituents. And many of them, it was clear, were not fans of the administration for a variety of reasons. But those organizations understood what you just said. And it's because, you know, although I think Trump is a whole other ball game in terms of being offensive, They've gone through different administrations. They've dealt with different uh, policies, and they know that if they're going to be relevant, if they're going to get wins for their constituents, they're going to work with every administration. So there are lots of people that get that and do it well. What I am really worried about, we certainly see in our national parties, not only are they not working with each other much at all, but you have these schisms within the parties that that seem wholly destructive. They don't seem helpful in in many cases what i'm i think the answer to your question remains to be seen like what's going to happen after this administration what really worries me is that you've seen with trump the parties go into their corners they were already there but even more so i'm just worried about will the future of policy be or the next stage of policy be as different as Trump as different from Trump as possible. Now there are plenty of policies that that's not a bad thing. Trump certainly is not furthering equity, and I I think he's been pretty explicit. I mean I mean I think if we even take away a lot of the offensiveness and the nastiness, to me, I feel like what Trump is pushing for is what he sees as overall prosperity, which you know I think he and his devotees would argue you know all all boats will be lifted by but perhaps at the expense of equity that for instance the argument that well the unemployment rate is lower than it's ever been for certain groups including groups that trump has seemed to be really insensitive and and offensive toward i feel like there's the sentiment well yeah it's not equitable but hey it's we're gonna we're gonna go for prosperity and That's a problem. I think it's a huge problem. But I get worried then. I don't want to pretend that the Democratic Party has been great on equity. It's been a million times better than the Republican Party and certainly a million times better than Trump. But the Democratic Party needs to change in so many ways and needs to advance uh, so many more uh, equitable policies And if we pretend that once Trump is gone, we just get the Democrats back in power and everything will be fine again. That's what really worries me. We've got to push the democratic party to be much more effective at pursuing equity.
1: Although I think the reality is that I think we just begin at a baseline again. I mean, I think that's what, that's where we land. You know, I mean, that's, I think that people feel like they're in survival mode. Right. And then, so I, I I completely get your point about we can't just see uh, um, electing Democrats as as the biggest win, right? Um, but I think most people think of electing Democrats as baseline zero, <laughs> and then now we have to start all over thinking about where we're going to go and And my question to that is, how do you start over? you know what's the incentive to push the Democrats really when to have them is like a baseline mm-hmm.
2: Well, I think that's a great question, and I think the midterms that are coming up—that's a—that's a big question for it. <laughs> whether the Democrats are, whether they have a message that is resonating beyond just "we're not Trump." Yep, that's the million-dollar question. I, I don't know the answer. I never claim to be a predictor <laughs> of these things. I, the
0: Democrats, like, it's like Charlie Brown with that football. Like they.
1: They just can't make it happen, can they? Like, I mean, oh, because I the, think fundamentally, this... fundamentally the Democrats don't want to change the landscape. They have different values, but they don't want to change how yeah, the that's it functions, really. I think
0: that's the thing. Like, I think people, especially like with the polarization that's happened in recent years, um, people forget that at the end of the day, the Democrats also want, Democrats Republicans are are split on social issues. And um, as far as that economic issues that affect those things, but beyond that, the structure and purposes of government—they, I they mean, they,
1: they don't agree. Yeah. I don't—they want to break it down, right? Yeah, you don't even want to destroy the system. Yeah, <laughs> right.
0: Right. Anyway, Jason, um, I'm glad you don't work there anymore. I'm just—I'm just, just going to say that. I'm glad. I'm glad. You're not the it only was- one. It was uncomfortable for me to explain. <laughs> I'm going be, be absolutely honest. It was very uncomfortable. I had to answer questions around like family dinner tables. So I is have- your friend Jason still working for Trump? I'm like, all right, everyone. Yes. And can we just get through a meal, please?
1: I know. I didn't even ask the race-based question. Because I have friends that said, do you think that Jason's going to be, be able to survive this because he's white? What does that mean? Of course, he's white. What <laughs> are you are, are you sensitive and aware of that, Jason, that you could probably you could survive this period at Trump because you are white? Oh, you mean his reputation? Your reputation. Oh. Because, I mean, because you do come from a liberal reputation space, right? You have a liberal education space in people's mind. That's why people started to attack you. Right. Are you able to come back into that space and feel like you are accepted again and, you know, respected?
2: Well, that's a good question. I guess well, I don't want to speak for anyone else, so we'll have to see. I yeah. mean, so, so far I've been pleased. I mean, even while I was there, you know, I was certainly in touch with a lot of my Democrat friends. I was working with many of them who work in education, and people had concerns, but I, we'll see how that goes. But I think what, what you were saying about race, yeah, I mean, one thing that was very interesting, a topic for another time, was working with African-American political
1: appointees. Because, because Trump's public rhetoric is so anti-Black. To have Black folks work there and then to, like, I was thinking about it with HBCUs who felt like they were not going to be able to get any movement and push forward. So, like, what about real groups of people who are like, I don't really know, but I still have to play the ball, right? I have to play the room, I have to be in the space, but am I really going to get anything? What was it like to encounter, like, African-American appointees?
2: Well, uh, you're touching on two things. One is yeah. African American organizations, which yeah. is one conversation. The other is appointees. I worked with several African American political appointees, both at the White House and in the Department of Education. And again, some of them are folks that come in every time there's a Republican administration. They are just diehard, you know, conservatives. And and some of them w- were new to to the federal government under this administration. And uh, but I'm thinking about what you said before. I do think it's easier for me to skate back into liberal circles, not that those folks necessarily want to, but I would guess it's a, you know, I think there are conservative circles that for lots of reasons are very excited to have African-American kind of true believers. And so there's a, there are careers for, for folks that, that fit into that category. But I think in terms of being able to exist in kind of multiple spaces, including liberal spaces, it's probably a lot harder for them than it is for me. I imagine. <laughs> it, it actually it reminds me of when I was in Israel. I remember that there was a time when three soldiers were captured. Uh, I want to say by Hezbollah, but one of the terrorist organizations. Two of the Israeli soldiers were Jews, and one of them was a, a Bedouin, an Israeli Arab. And I remember my friend said he's going to get it the worst. Because, um, you know, they're going to see him as a traitor, right? Not just a, not just a hostile, but a traitor. I think that that's an extreme example, but I do think there are people that see politics that way in this country. True. Sure. Well, uh, that was a lot. So...
0: <laughs> okay, let's move on to recommendations, which is something you've seen, heard, read, or experienced that you think other people should see, hear, read, or
1: experience. Tricia, what do you have? So... I was listening to the Ezra Klein show and he had on this guy called Francis Ukiyama, he's a writer, case against identity politics. This man is generally a conservative. I don't really follow that circle very much. So I was really coming to his ideas fresh. So I didn't have any kind of expectations about what he was going to talk about in terms of identity politics. I'm like, okay, let's, let's explore this question of identity politics and, I was really buying into this notion that America had sort of moved away from assimilationist ideas, that there was a kind of centralizing cultural experience that defined America that immigrants subscribed to. Because I think you a case could be made for first-generation immigrants being that sort. And so his ca- his argument was that identity politics might eventually swallow up America because Americans haven't settled in on this common definition of who they are. So I was ready to buy that kind of. And then there's a point midway through the podcast where he said something and throws a bomb into the argument. But I was really drawn in by the conversation because it reminded me of Jason's point a few podcasts ago when we were talking about, do we have agreed upon and shared values? And I don't know if it's just like nostalgia but I felt like first-generation immigrants, if you were to sit them down, they might talk about a shared American value system. And I, I, that, maybe that's just nostalgia from when I was a kid, when people would define America in a certain way. But so I was caught up in the podcast listening to it. And I, I found it sort of a fascinating discussion. But I think what was really great about it is that Ezra really pushed back on the idea that there is such a thing as white identity that why, does, why is identity politics often defined as very negative? And then why is it often defined only from a sort of minority perspective? So it was a, it was a very interesting discussion. Um, so I actually would recommend it, um, even though he throws a bomb in it towards the end. And I'm curious to see when you all figure out what part of the bomb it was. <laughs> but it was, it, was, it was good. I think it's important for us to actually talk about identity politics from the perspective of understanding that white identity plays out in politics as well so that's for sure yeah <laughs> it, was very, it was fascinating jason three quick ones first Ooh. of
2: all you oh two made God. fun of me when i recommended deadpool i recently <laughs> saw deadpool 2 i liked it even better so i'm recommending deadpool 2 and fuck you if you don't like it Whoa. secondly, <laughs> secondly <laughs> i recently read the communist manifesto by Marx. Oh, and I, I really want to recommend that. It is so interesting to read in this time. It is both in some ways more insightful and predictive of, I think, current economic trends than I would have expected, but also, and we we touched on this a little bit in a previous conversation, the economic determinism really seems dated, and there are other things that seem dated. But I think it's a great read, and it's a pretty quick read. It's not very long. And lastly, I heard a segment on the NPR show Studio 360, they had a segment on Afrofuturism, which I found just really interesting, and it was great. I enjoyed was it. Was that your first exposure to Afrofuturism? You know, I don't know that I had actually, I think it was my first exposure to the term. Now, most of what they talked about as being kind of prominent examples, I was familiar with, and the, there were several interviews, but the longest one was with Trisha Rose, who I am familiar with and have read things by her in the past. But it was uh, it was just a, the, the way they drew the kind of linear narrative from the 60s to the present of Afro, Afrofuturism. I, I really enjoyed that, particularly on the musical side.
1: Where did you hear this?
2: Studio 360, which is every Sunday I listen to it on NPR.
0: I want to recommend a video that went viral like three years ago, but it came up on my Facebook memories and I love it. There is a teacher in Los Angeles, Melinda... Melinda Williams um, and her third, fourth, and fifth grade class did this amazing Motown review where they dressed up in period costumes and they did like this whole dance. It was uh, for Baldwin Hills Elementary in Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. Uh, It is all these beautiful black children dressed up as like Martha and the Vandellas and like the Jackson (laughs) 5 and like Stevie Wonder. And they have this incredible, incredible dance performance. And every time I see it, my eyes well up with tears because – It's one of those things where I look at and I think about, like, I love the fact that, like, Black people, like, the entire world being anti-Black, trying to crush, like, the spirit of a people. And then you watch these kids dancing and nailing it and living their very best lives. And it's like, we are literally superhuman, like, literally superpowers. (laughs) I love All the Black boy joy and the Black girl magic. It will put a smile on your face. I love it. So check that out.
2: I'm definitely going to check out that video. That sounds
0: good. <laughs> I think you definitely should. It's, it's really fantastic. <laughs> so, so anyway, so ends the epic journey of Jason um, through Trump land. So,
2: fantastic. thanks for listening. I yeah. appreciate it.
0: Well, it it was long. So, <laughs> if we have any listeners left. Uh, I hope that you enjoyed this uh, part one, part two, two week extravaganza into the inner workings of the department of education. And after this, we're going back to the regular schedule. It's going to be every other week because this was too much for me. I'll be honest.
2: I feel like we should do something like at the end of a Marvel movie, like just to reward the people who've stayed this long, right?
0: (laughs) (laughs) We should all be eating chicken shawarma or something. just some, some sort of end credit scene that, like, no oh, you need to give out like a tuned. secret
1: nugget you need to give out like a secret nugget of a secret detail that happened while you were there <laughs> that you can't share with everyone
0: no don't do that
1: <laughs>
0: I think I think the episode will keep you from being sued or assassinated as it stands I don't know if you should mess with it R-
2: ruin it now yeah,
0: no. keep your secrets. I think All you right. should definitely keep those secrets. Ugh. Okay, everyone. So, uh, we'll see you next week, actually, for the regularly scheduled episodes. So, bye. Bye.
2: bye. bye.